But really, that uh, acronym up there just stands for if you want something done right, do it yourself. If you want something done right, do it yourself. And I think we've, and you've all experienced that. I think I have some, some examples up here as to uh, uh, mistakes that, that can be made. There we go. If you want something done right, do it yourself. And all of you have been in this position before, right? Um, wives, you've probably asked your husband to do some simple task. Watch the kids for five minutes while I take a break, right? And you come back and, oh my goodness, who knows? Really, you had one job. One job. Or um, employers or employees, you've asked somebody to do something and it's like, oh my goodness, the mess that it ends up making is just not worth the effort. I know a lot of times in, in, a, in preacher school, they'll say, how come, what is the number one reason that you think pastors, and I'm sure this is not just in ministry, this is probably also in business and in all sorts of fields, why you don't ask people for help. And there are all sorts of answers, but the number one answer is because it's just easier to do it yourself than it is to have somebody else do it and then clean up the mess and end up doing it yourself anyways after that. So this is, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Now, as we enter into our text today, this is a message about God's work of salvation. In fact, the, the message, the, the text itself is really a sermon from Paul. It's the longest sermon that Paul preaches, or at least the longest sermon that we have recorded. I know he preached a longer one because later on we'll see that um, a guy fell out of the window at midnight because Paul preached so long. But this is the longest one. We, that one wasn't recorded for us. This one's recorded for us, and it is about how God worked in history to bring about his salvation. Here's the issue I don't want you to go away with. So I don't want you to end up with the idea that You or I or anybody else brings about our salvation. In other words, salvation is not a work of man. So I don't want you to apply this. If you want something done right, do it yourself. I don't want you to apply that to yourself in regards to salvation. Are you with me? What this is about is that the work of salvation is a work of God. And if it's going to get done. If any of us are sitting here saved today, if you are here a child of God, it was not because you did it yourself or you found somebody who could do it for you. It was because God took the initiative and God did salvation right. In fact, one of the things we're going to see as we go through our text today that mankind cannot save and that, in, for I guess you could say from God's perspective, the salvation is going to be done at all. It is going to be done by God himself. If salvation is going to be done, it must be done by him. So, as we look at just a quick preview of where I hope to go today, we're going to see Paul's sermon as he outlines salvation history. We're going to see that God literally moves history. 
He works through the ages to bring about His salvation to you and I whose hearts are hard and necks are stiff. He brings salvation to that kind of person. To a person with a hard heart and a stiff neck. That's who God brings salvation to. We're going to see how God has moved history to bring about salvation. We're going to see God, Paul is going to highlight God's mighty saving power. It is such a mighty saving power that even the sinful acts of mankind do not derail God's plans. Not even our sinful acts derail God's plan. And then ultimately, because this is a sermon, both Paul's and mine, there will be a time for a response. God, or Paul calls the people to make a response to the message that he has just proclaimed. What I hope to do today when you walk out of here is I hope that we have a high view of God that we make much of God and we make much of Christ and His work in this message and in this entire service. Our services are um, really centered around making much of Christ. We read God's Word, we preach God's Word, we pray God's Word, I believe we sing songs that make much of God. And in this sermon, I hope to make much of God. And when you walk out of here, you can say that God was honored, God was glorified, God was exalted, Christ was, was named and that he is the center of all things. So I hope that's one of the things we do. I think we have that need. We live in such a narcissistic uh, society that we're told to, you know, you know, we have this mistaken idea that what we need is more self-esteem. And that's another sermon. Today, though, we will lower our self-esteem or we will put it on the shelf and make much of Christ. I think it's also important to remind ourselves, how did we become a child of God? If you're sitting here today and you've repented of your sins and called upon the name of the Lord, how did you get here? How did that happen? What did God have to do to get you to a place to hear the gospel to soften your heart and enable to you to repent and call upon His name and bring you to a little church in Pine. What had to happen? I hope we will remind ourselves of all that God has done. And if you are here today and you've never called upon the name of the Lord, I pray that you would consider these claims. And you would look at Paul's sermon, you would make note of it, and in the end, you would respond and call upon the name of the Lord. So that's where we're at, I'm going to read our text this morning. This is Acts, not Mark. Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 41. Listen to God's inerrant word. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, you and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm 
brought them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finished his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up from him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. This is the sufficient an authoritative word of God. So we begin with Paul and his companions traveling um, on their first missionary journey. And um, just to give you an idea where we're at, they started off here in Antioch, remember? That's where they were praying and fasting and the Spirit of God spoke to them, said, set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas, and I'm going to send them out. And they sailed out of this town called Seleucia down to the island of Cyprus. They preached in the synagogues of Salamis, traveled across land to Paphos, and that's where they met Sergius Paulus. And Sergius Paulus becomes the first convert on this first missionary journey. So then they sail. This is where we pick up. They sail across the, the Mediterranean Sea to uh, Perga, and they land here, and then they travel up into the mountains, the, the, uh, up to what's called Antioch Pisidia. Um, it's a different Antioch. 
at Antioch, Pisidia. It's in the mountains. I understand it's a fair, it would have been a fairly dangerous route. Um, it's up at about 3,600 feet. And so they would have had to go through a number of different uh, mountain passage. It would have been a, a bit of a, uh, a challenging and dangerous journey. But they are um, serving and doing this first missionary journey. And they come to this place called Pisidian Antioch. And as is their custom, they enter into the synagogue and they are asked to read the text. A couple, um, a couple of things we should, should take note of. First of all, we want to note that you'll notice Paul is called Paul. All right. We saw that very be- at the very beginning. Or we saw that last week that Saul, who was called Paul, but now Saul is called Paul. All right. No more Saul. And we'll also notice that Paul's name is mentioned first. It's always been Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and his companions. You should also note that John Mark left them. So that's going to become an issue down the road. So I won't deal with that, but that's going to become an issue. So Paul and Barnabas, and they go into the synagogue and they are asked, brothers, if you have a word of encouragement, won't you speak them? And so Paul now steps up and preaches his first recorded sermon. It's certainly not his first sermon. He's been a Christian by this point about 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. But now he's going to talk about God making promises. That God has made promises. And that's where we begin. And I want you to note his audience. His audience is both Jews. These are probably uh, Jews from the area. They've probably been dispersed out of Jerusalem for a variety of reasons. Some of them may have been kicked out of Rome. And they are now in Pisidian Antioch. And also God-fearers. God-fearers would have been Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. So, brothers, Jews, and God-fearers, listen to my sermon. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go back and read just a portion of of Paul's sermon. It is God's sermon through the mouth of Paul. But what I want you to do is I want you to follow along with me. You all have Bibles, and we bring them to church. If not, you have a phone, and I want you to bring up your Bible app, or if you have an old school um, analog Bible, you know, one with like this. I want you to follow along with me, and I want you to know who is acting in this first part of Paul's sermon. Who is the primary actor in Paul's sermon? You ready? Here we go. I'm going to pick up with verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he, God, led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David, the king, to be their king, whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, 
offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, among those who fear God, to us has been sent this, to us has been sent this message of salvation. I will pause here for just a moment and make a couple of points. Notice the actions of God. God chose, God made, God led, God put up with. (laughs) I love that. There's actually a little textual variant there for all of you who, who are interested. And it's just a little difference of one single letter. But it could mean that God put up with, as we have recorded here. Or it could mean that God carried as a mother carries a nursing child. Probably both. Doesn't really. God did put up with them, and God also bore them across the desert. But you will note, God put up with, God defeated, God gave the land, God gave the judges, God gave Saul, God removed Saul, God raised up David, God brought a Savior, God sent the message of salvation, and God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, I'm going to just make a couple of observations about this first part of Paul's sermon, this part of God promising salvation. Just a couple of observations that that I want to make. And the first observation is, don't you find that an interesting way to recount history? Because, just think about it. So if I was going to tell you the history of how I met my wife, it would go something like this. I was at Grand Canyon College studying Bible. And because I had a job that was only about three miles away, when I got done with my classes um, in the early afternoon, I would go to the library. And there I would study until it was time for me to go to work. But because I worked late and because afternoons are a pretty difficult time for me, I would generally take a nap in the library. I would start working and I'd fall asleep and take a nap. It just so happened that Simone also worked in that, worked in that library and she was required periodically to go around and count the, the number of students in the library. And it was as she was counting the students that she came by and saw a person sleeping and wondered, how in the world would somebody sleep in the library? Aren't you afraid that somebody would take all your stuff or something like that? And at that moment, I woke up and we began to talk. And the rest is history. That's how I would tell the story, something like that. But if I were to tell the story, this historical account, by the way, Paul recounts history, it would be quite different. It would be, God led me to go to Grand Canyon College and study the Bible. And because God had blessed me with a job that was only about three miles away, in fact, he gave me that job five years prior to me ever attending Grand Canyon College. But he gave me a job that was nearby campus. And he gave me a library in which I could go and study. And in my studying that God gave me the intelligence to do or the the commitment to do, I would inevitably fall asleep and God would give me rest during my sleep. And it was during that time while I was resting that God, who also incidentally gave a woman by the name of Simone, a job there at the library and required her to go around and count the people as she was counting the people as God had determined her to do. 
that day, she came across me, a, a guy who was sleeping. And God woke me up in the very moment that she was wondering in her, in her mind how it is that somebody can sleep in the library. And God softened my heart and said, wow, that's a beautiful woman talking to me. It would go something like that. Do you notice the difference? I don't tell stories like that, and neither do you. In other words, when Paul's telling this story about salvation, and and he's putting God at the center of everything, Paul is making a statement. He is making a theological statement. He's making a statement about Almighty God. He is calling these people and telling them that history just doesn't happen. But there is a great and glorious and awesome and wonderful God who rules over all. And you, men of Israel and God-fearers, you need to reckon with him. You need to think about him. You need to deal with him. You need to confront this God because he is the emphasis and explanation of your very existence and even of your salvation. Paul is making a point. There is a God who rules over all and you need to deal with it. You need to reckon with him. And I pray this day that we confront this God and we are going to have to reckon with a God who moves history to bring about his decrees. God begins the process of salvation and God concludes the process of salvation. And Paul is very deliberate about this. The second observation I want to make Uh, about this is to focus on the grace of God. So we see that God is the one who actually moves history to bring about his, his promises, but we should also note grace. Grace is throughout this passage of text, and I begin with this statement, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. We'll just stop right there. God chose our fathers. Now, when we speak about the fathers, we're probably talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we have to ask the question, on what basis did God choose Abraham or Isaac or Jacob? What did they do to merit God's choosing? This is... This is an example of grace because, see, grace is not contingent on anything else. God did not choose Abraham because Abraham was a great guy. God chose Abraham, who was a moon worshiper in the land of Ur, who had no thoughts whatsoever about Yahweh. And God broke into that idolatrous man's heart and brought him out. On what basis does God select Jacob? I mean, you can say, well, Jacob was better than Esau. Well, I don't know. We can argue about that. Neither of them were very good. This is pure, unmerited grace, folks. And that is the point of grace. If you are here today and you've experienced the grace of God, it is utterly and completely unmerited. You did not earn it, deserve it. Otherwise, it's not grace, is it? It is a wage due. 
If you've been saved by the grace of God, you are saved by His grace as His gift, not because of some merit in and of yourself. God didn't see something. Oh, I really like that in that person. I think I, I could use them in my kingdom. They would be valuable in my kingdom. In other words, there is some, something meritorious about you, your skill set, your intellect, or your heritage, or your upbringing, or your thought process, or something meritorious about you. God did not bestow grace upon you in that way. Look at this. In the Exodus, it says, And God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And he led them out. They were saved out of Egypt, not by their own might, not by their own strength, not by their own ingenuity. Not by, in fact, Moses tried to save them, didn't he? Moses went in and killed a, a, an Egyptian man who he saw abusing another um, Israelite. That didn't work. Moses, if you're going to save your people, you're, it's not going to get done by you. If the people of Israel are going to get delivered, I'm going to have to do it myself. See, because if you want something done right, I'll have to do it myself. I will deliver the people out of Egypt. I will do it. God raised up judges. God showed his grace to Israel or in Israel's rebellion by giving them judges. Do you remember why God gave Israel judges? The people would rebel against God, wouldn't they? And then they would get themselves in a big, messy situation, and they would be oppressed by the nations around them, and they would cry out to God, God, deliver us. Why? Because we can't deliver ourselves. All we've done is made a big mess of things. We can't save ourselves. God, will you bring forth somebody who can deliver us? And so God would bring forth a judge and they would deliver the people of Israel from their oppressors. And then they would go back into the same pattern. They'd rebel against God, create idols, worship idols, and uh, bow down to the Baals and the Asherahs. And God would then bring judgment and they would cry out for a, for a savior. And God would bring forth a judge and deliver them. And there goes the pattern of the book of Judges. Israel could not save themselves, so God saved them. And then he brought forth kings interesting he says and I brought forth Saul because when you read the account the people elected Saul they thought Saul was the guy because he was head and shoulders above everybody else he was good looking he looks like a king but ultimately God says yeah I gave you the king Saul he was favored among the people but he was an utter failure an utter failure he could not deliver you in fact in the end what a, what, what a tragic life what a tragic end to the life of Saul and so then God gave them David. Now we've got some hope. Here's a great king. He was a great king and he's a terrible savior. He also could not follow God's laws. He could not fulfill God's righteousness. He started off pretty well. Trusting God. And then he became an adulterous murderer among other things. So he can't fulfill the righteousness of God. Just a quick summary. We cannot save ourselves. 
That's evidence in the book of Judges. We cannot save ourselves. That's evident in the, in the Exodus in Egypt. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot deliver ourselves. Nor can other men save us. Even great men like, the, like David, like King David, they cannot save us. And so God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. If you want something done right, do it yourself. And God does it perfectly. So God sent his son. David can't save you. Saul can't save you. The judges can't save you. Moses can't save you. They are all... None of them can fulfill God's righteousness. And so God sent forth his son. You need to pause for a moment and explain why Jesus can save. The reason Jesus can save is because while he is man, he is also God. He is 100% man and 100% God. Here's why. Because man's the one who owes, owes the debt. Man's the one who's in debt. God's not in debt. Man owes the debt. God's the only one who has the means to pay the debt. God can pay, but he doesn't owe. Man owes, but he can't pay. What's the solution? The solution is God sends his son puts on flesh and dwells among us as the God-man who die, who fulfills right, all, the, all righteousness, dies in our place, and because he's God, it's an acceptable payment. God steps in and says, listen, if this salvation is going to get done right, I'm going to have to do it myself. I will not only... Choose the fathers. I will not only bring them up out of the land of Egypt. I will not only give them kings, but I will, I myself will send my son who will live and fulfill all righteousness, die in their place, and that will work perfect. If you want something done right, God does it himself. Now you might be asking, well, Is there any human contribution to this? Yes, there is. Humans play a key role in all of this. Let's read about that. Verse 26. Brothers, notice again. I want you to pick out who's the actor. Who is the main actor in this this passage? Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To us has been sent the message of salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him, speaking of the Savior, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. I want you to note this. The role of mankind in salvation. They killed the Savior. They didn't recognize Jesus as God's Savior. And I love this. Even though it's read weekly in the prophets. In other words, you ought to have known. You should have known. Every week you read about Messiah. 
And you should have recognized him when he came, but you didn't. And instead, you put him to death. They didn't recognize Jesus as God's Savior. They did not understand the prophets. They have eyes that do not see, and they have ears that do not hear. They have become that like that which they worship. They've become mute and dumb and deaf and blind like the idols that they worshipped. And when the Lord of glory appeared in their midst, they did not recognize him, though they should have. And instead of honoring and bowing the knee, they murdered him. Well, that probably derails all that God had planned. No, not really. In fact, it says they carried out all that God said would happen to him. In other words, they didn't derail God's plans. They fulfilled God's plans. That's exactly what was supposed to happen. God brought forth his Messiah and he was supposed to fulfill all righteousness and then he would die as a substitutionary death. He would die in their place and he would actually fulfill God's purposes and plans. You killed the Son of God, but God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. Do you notice? This is exactly like Peter's sermons. You remember when Peter was Peter's sermons early on in the book of Acts? You killed the king of glory and God raised him from the dead. So that's the first part of Paul's sermon. Let me give a quick summary. We cannot save ourselves. There is nobody around us who can save us. In fact, we actively resist God's saving work, and yet man's resistance actually fulfilled God's decree. Now, second part of Paul's sermons. First part was the promise made. The second part is the promise kept. But God raised him for the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who'd come up from him from Galilee to Jerusalem as we are witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news that what God promised the fathers he has fulfilled to us and their children by raising Jesus. Here's the promise. We bring you good news. Here's the good news. Jesus was put to death by sinful men, but I got good news for you. God made promises. Here's the good news. God has fulfilled his promise. He fulfilled his promise to the fathers and note how he fulfilled his promises by raising Jesus from the dead. God fulfilled his promise. How? By by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on and says, just as it is written. In other words, you guys are familiar with this. You are Jews and you are God-fearers. You know the Hebrew scriptures. Just as it is written. This resurrection of Jesus Christ. He begins, he says, just as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Much could be said about that. Let me just quickly say, this psalm, um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the vindication of Jesus' sonship. Jesus is the son of God. His resurrection is vindication of that claim. 
Remember when they accused Jesus of blasphemy because he made himself equal, he made himself out to be the Son of God? They consider that blasphemy. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead vindicates the claim. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, I think is is maybe one of our our great cross-references here. Just as it is written, and he, Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. How is Jesus declared the Son of God? By his resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead proves that Jesus is the Son of God. Just as he claimed. And then he goes on. He says, resurrection was the plan of God. Look at, it says, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Might ask ourselves, I wonder, what are are the holy and sure blessings of David? I'm glad you asked. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16 says this. Listen carefully. This is to David. And your house, David... And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Your kingdom shall be made sure forever and your throne will be established forever. Paul now says that sure promise has been made. um, That promise has been made sure in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can the the sure promises, the eternal dominion and the eternal throne of David be established? How does that come about? It can only come about by somebody through whom death has no power or authority. It can only come through somebody who lives forever. And it can't be David because David's dead. It must be in reference to the one who overcomes death. Quick summary. Paul's argument so far is that God has given his promise to send a Savior to his chosen people, Israel. He kept that promise by sending Jesus, the son of David, in fulfillment of the prophecies given hundreds of years before. The fact that the Jewish leaders rejected and killed Jesus did not thwart but actually fulfilled God's promises because God raised Jesus from the dead also in accordance with all of the prophecies. In other words, promise made. I'm going to bring you a Savior. Promise fulfilled. Jesus is that Savior. You want proof? I raised him from the dead. And he lives forevermore. The promises of David fulfilled. The promises to bring forth a Savior fulfilled. But wait, there's more. I'm glad you stuck around for the wait, there's more. Because now Paul calls for a response. And the response is this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. That through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which could not be freed from the law of Moses. Stop. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, through this man, through Jesus, comes the forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus comes the forgiveness of sins. 
Here's the thing, folks. Sin separates us from God. Isaiah is very clear about this. Your sins have separated you from me. We have a breach. There is a breach between God and sinful men. There is a breach. There is a span. There is a gap. There is a great chasm that separates us from God because of our sins. Now, here's the thing that's become really challenging in our day and age, and that is most people, and especially I, I, I talk to guys and, and ladies who are in, especially in college ministry, and the idea of sinfulness is such a foreign concept because nobody believes that they have sinned. Especially in high school and college campuses. You ask them, have I sinned? No, I've never sinned. There's no reason for God to be angry at me. There's no reason for God to have a gap or a separation. I have never sinned against a holy God. That's the prevailing thought today. I'm a good person. The things I do are good. If you're here today and you said that I have never sinned, first of all, God says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of that sin is death and that if you say you have no sin, you are a liar and you make God a liar. But I'll just go to a very well-used logic, I guess, apologetic, perhaps more accurately, um, that if you were here today and you say, well, I've never, I'm not sinned, I'm a good person, let me ask you this, have you ever lied? All right, keep, you don't have to raise your hands because that's unanimous. Because I know you have. That's a sin against a holy God. If you have lied, you have sinned against a holy God. Have you ever wanted somebody else's stuff, been envious of somebody else's stuff, their new car, their bigger house, their, their nicer piece of property? Their job, their position, their honor, their title, their gift, their talent, their ability. Why can't I be that talented? How come I didn't get the raise? I deserve the raise. You shall not covet. You have sinned against a holy God. You are a coveting liar. Or a lying coveter. Take your choice. The Bible says very clearly that you shall have no other gods before me. In fact, the, the Ten Commandments begin this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, who brought you up out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because I'm the God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt. And actually, in the Hebrew, it's very interesting. I didn't mean to go here, but in the Hebrew, it's interesting. It literally says, no gods to my face. That's the literal translation. Actually, there's a double negative. No, no gods to my face or in my face. Be kind of like this. You get married. You marry the woman or man of your dreams. Great wedding. Great honeymoon. You wake up on the day uh, after your wedding day and you roll over and on the nightstand is the ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend of your present wife or husband. How does that fly? It doesn't fly. It doesn't fly. That thing gets crushed. God is, that's what God is saying. No other gods in my face. And if you have any other thing that you desire 
more than God, you are an idolater. You have put something before God. If you desire your hobby, your job, your family, your loved ones, anything that comes before a holy God, you have committed idolatry. You have put another God in his face. So you are an idolatrous, covetous liar. I could go on, but you get the point. Sin separates you. And from Jesus, now, through this man Jesus, comes forgiveness of lying, adulterous idolaters. Or even worse, Paul was a, Paul was a man who had put people, sentenced people to death. Through Jesus, sins are forgiven. But that's not all. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, proclaim to you that by him... Listen to this. Therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everyone, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It's a rather um, loaded sentence. And let me just... I, I am not a Greek scholar. I have... And I am not. But I cannot for the life of me understand why they translated this word freed as freed. It is the Greek word dikaio and it's always translated justified. And in NIV and King James and Christian Standard Bible, it's always it's translated justified. I have no idea. I'll have to talk to some of the translators, why they translated this freed. But let me put in what I think is the more precise idea. I'll read basically this from a different translation. And by him, everyone who believes is justified. And he is justified from everything which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. I suppose the meanings are the same, but I think justification is at the heart of Paul's preaching. It's the heart of Paul's gospel. It's the heart of the Christian faith. So I think justified is a much more, um, it's a term that we can identify with much, easy, much more easily. What does it mean to be justified? To be justified is a declaration. It is a declarative statement that you are not guilty. It means to be acquitted. It means to be cleared. So... Through Jesus, everyone who believes is declared not guilty, is acquitted of their crimes, is set free and cleared from the crimes that they have committed. They are freed and justified, declared not guilty from everything which you could not be declared not guilty by the law of Moses. Jesus declares us not guilty. It is through Jesus that we are set right with God. We're not just forgiven of our sins. We're actually declared innocent or treated as though we're innocent. And the law of Moses could not do this. The law of Moses could not declare you righteous. And the reason the law of Moses could not declare you righteous is because as good as it was, it was never meant to make you righteous. It was never its intent. Jesus provides what the law cannot the law can reveal your sin, but it cannot heal your sin. I just gave you three examples from the Ten Commandments, God's law of 
of violations. And you might have said, yeah, I've committed all three of those. I am an idolater. I am a liar and I am a covetous person. You will notice that pointing those things out didn't fix any of them, did it? Because the law can't fix them. The law can point them out. And the law does a really good job of pointing them out. But the law cannot declare you not guilty. Only through Jesus comes a not guilty verdict. That's it. So, through Jesus comes the forgiveness of sins. And through Jesus, you are acquitted of your crimes, something that good works can never do. You can say, well, I, I don't believe the law of Moses anyways. I'm just a good person. Your good works will never acquit you before a holy God. One of the reasons why your good works can't clear you is because God gave you the ability to do those good works. Whatever good works you may do come from God anyways. They're not yours. They didn't arise from you. They are God's good works. The law can reveal our sin, but it cannot heal our sin. The law cannot produce perfect obedience, but in Christ you are given perfect obedience. You are given righteousness. Because why? Because you're in Christ. Christ is the righteous one and you are in Christ. And so God now treats you as righteous. He treats you as justified. He considers you in Christ. Folks, one final point on this. Through Jesus comes forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus comes justification. But note to who it is given. It is to those who believe. To those who believe. Those of you that turn from other lords and trust in Christ only for your right standing with God will come justification and forgiveness of sins. To those who turn from other lords, self-righteousness, some other philosophical system, some other religious system, well, you know, I believe that I can be be saved by doing, you know, the the rites of another religious activity or another religious um, faith. If I do the rites prescribed by that, I'll be made right with God because all paths lead to heaven. No. To those who believe in Christ come justification and the forgiveness of sins. That's it. Paul has one final word, and that is judgment on those who reject. And he quotes Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. The idea here is this. The, re- the warning is this, that God brought judgment upon Israel who would not repent. He brought the Babylonian Empire down upon a nation who would not turn away from their sins. Paul's point is this. Just as certainly as he did that in the past so he will bring the same judgment down on those who today do not repent. And you can be certain of it. How are we certain? Because God did it in the past and God will still will do it again in the future. So God, Paul ends with a warning. Just as God brought judgment on those who refused his gracious offer, he will also judge those who refused the gracious offer of Christ. That's his, that's his conclusion. Let me give you my conclusion. Just a few points. Point number one. 
God has moved history. God has moved history to fulfill his decrees of redeeming mankind from the rebellion against him. God has moved history to fulfill his decrees of redeeming mankind from the rebellion against him. These acts of God in history are acts of grace. These acts of God in history are acts of grace. Three, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's redemptive work in history. He is the fulfillment of prophecy and he has been raised from the dead. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's salvific decrees. And in him, in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins and in Jesus we are declared right with God. Second to last point. Do not refuse this gracious gift. Do not refuse this gracious gift. Finally, the work of salvation is impossible with man. But if you want something done right, do it yourself. And God wanted salvation done perfectly. He did it himself. Father, we come before you this day and we are grateful for the complete salvation that you've given to us by your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have forgiveness of sins and we are justified in your sight. And Lord, we come to you believing. Lord, I pray for those who here today, if there are any here who do not believe, who have not called upon the name of the Lord, who have not repented of their sins and sought your forgiveness, I pray that this day, Lord God, would be the day that they seek out your forgiveness, that they would come and talk to myself and or Simone or any of the other believers in this place, and they would call upon your name and be saved. Lord, we're grateful for all that you've given to us, for your great blessings, your love and kindness. Lord, you've been merciful to us. Have mercy on us this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
All right, it's my turn to do announcements, and mine are easy. You got a bulletin? Read it. And the announcements are in there. Um, I have one exception. Um, at this point, we have our picnic down at the, the nat-